All right, everybody. So today we have back on the podcast a fan favorite, Lyle McDonald. How are you doing, man? I'm well. How are you? As we think... watch the world burn. As we watch the world burn. Yeah, really. I think uh, in terms of DMs I get about guests, you have to be one of the most commented on in terms of people saying one yeah. that <laughs> that I, I seem to be, you know, one of the people who who gets along with you well, which you know I, I think is great to hear. Um, and then two, just request to get you back on. Now, obviously, okay. you know, I mean, your podcasts do very well, and so it's always great to have you back on, man. Well, very good. One of the things that you know was talked about maybe in the last few weeks, um, kind of related, a few related things. I had seen there was that letter letter to the editor that uh, the 3D and J team. I think it was specifically Eric Helms, Jacob Skepis, and maybe there's one other person on there. Um, and they had basically come out and, you know, while it was done very cordially and it, w- it was done professionally, mm-hmm. it, it, in a way, a lot of people were saying they were calling out the Renaissance periodization team and their, their methods of this uh, MEV to MRV and, and all of that. Um, so, again, while it was done professionally, I, I think there was certainly an attitude to it, not necessarily by them, but to the fitness community as a whole, because I know a lot of people don't necessarily agree with that. And I, I see the smirk on your face. So why don't you give us your thoughts? Oh, I laughed and laughed and laughed because I, I had read the original paper whenever it came out like months ago. And I've got a whole page of notes that I, I haven't been writing a lot over the last few months. I just kind of, my head hasn't been in it. And I, I had meant to write something very similar arguments. I would have been far less polite about it. Yeah. Um, but it's just as a random comment, one of my favorite things about science is when people write critical letters like that or editorials or letter to the editor, the passive aggressiveness just screams out of the text. Yeah. It's like there and they're like, we read with great interest the whatever. <laughs> article study, whatever, by such and such. However, we raise some, qu- and, and like, you can hear what they really want to say is what I would say, which is right. like, these dumb a-holes couldn't science their way out of it. Like, and then the response is, we appreciated the criticism by such and such, which is like, yeah, you dumb bastard. Like, it just, it makes me laugh. Um, so for context, for anybody listening to this, the original article, which was by Mark Isratel, Carl Juneau, and I forget who the third author was off the top of my head, um, only because I'm familiar with both of those, basically made or attempted to make an argument that the best approach to progressive overload across a training cycle was to manipulate volume and that that was better than manipulating intensity although they kind of jumped back and forth. First, they started with talking about relative intensity, like percent of max, and they talked about adding weight within a given rep range, and those really aren't the same thing, and they they kind of flip-flop. And their argument really, well, this wasn't good, because basically they were like, okay, so we have these three studies that show that progressive volumes up to a point generate more growth, right? And those studies were three groups, low volume, medium volume, high volume. Three other studies that, whatever, found moderate volumes were best, generally accepted that increasing volume to a point generates hypertrophy. But again, all these studies are looking at three distinct volumes. The only paper I'm aware of that has looked at progressive volumes was Mike's paper. Sorry, not Mike's paper. It was Cody Hahn. 
Yes, H A U N. Uh, Mike Roberts, I want to say, is the last the guy. Mike Isertel was involved with it. There's like 12 authors, so I will refer to it as Mike's paper. It's one Mike was involved with. Yeah. Uh, Renaissance funded it. It was clearly testing out, you know, his old idea of minimum effective volumes, maximum recoverable volumes, et cetera, et cetera. So they kind of wander through this thing and they're like, well, you know, you, you have to find a balance between if adding weight to the bar will decrease the amount of volume you can do, right? Because he's still working from this standpoint that volume is the primary driver. And as I'm sure I'll come back to, yeah, no, it's not. Right. It never has been. And the way the studies are structured, well, people are missing a very important point. And so they kind of walk through all this and they're like, well, knowing that more volume is good up to a point, this and that and the other, it stands to reason. That was one of their actual sentences. It stands to reason to me as philosophy. That's not science. What that means is we've made up our mind and we are going to back justify our conclusion, right? The science either supports it or it doesn't. You don't get to reason your way through physiology. That is just validating your preconceived biases. And they decided that, well, because of this, because there's an, the, the best way to progress was to start at a low volume, 10 sets per week, build to 20 sets per week, which is, you know, the quote unquote maximum recoverable volume. Now, and while doing that, you should be adding weight to stay within a certain rep range. Now, earlier in the paper, they said, well, you can't do both. You can't add sets and add weight at the same time. And then their exact recommendation, it, it, it's very, I would have to get into way too many details. And that logic doesn't follow for any number of reasons. Um, I would like to note, right, going back to the whole volume wars that have kind of people are trying to pretend never happened. In my original piece, my original criticism, all of this, Brad's original paper, the volume recommendations I came up with were 10 to 20 sets per week. And everybody fought with me. No, Brad's 45 sets and this and that and the other, and you're wrong and you're stupid. And now two years later, everyone is repeating that, including yeah. Matt, including Mike, including Eric, including James Krieger. None of them have the guts to step up and go, yeah. What they're really saying is that Lyle was right all along. But... So it's good enough for me to know it, even if they won't have the guts to say it. So anyway, so that was the basic gist of the paper. Yeah. And so then uh, Eric and J Jacob and whomever else sort of wrote this critical criticism. Wow. Yeah, I'm a writer for a living, believe it or not. Um, they wrote a critical criticism, which is the best kind. Sort <laughs> of walking through it and making some of the same points that I made. Um, one of the big ones being that one of the things with progressive overload that's really gotten misunderstood is the idea that you have to add something weekly or even daily, right? This is the old HIT fallacy. Oh, if you can't add weight every workout and make progress every workout, then you're overtraining and you should train less frequently. All right, tell that to an elite athlete. Tell that to an elite powerlifter. Tell it, oh yeah, guys, if you can't add weight to your 180 kilo clean and jerk, every week right it's nonsense and this so that's kind of a non sequitur the idea that oh we're going to start at 10 sets and add two sets per week or whatever it is over cycle till we hit 20. this is a misunderstanding of progressive overload on a fundamental level now make no mistake i some of my workouts my generic bulking routine i i recommend people at least attempt to add weight regularly if they can if you're eating enough at an intermediate level over short periods of time you can usually do it up to a point 
over. But the reality is that if you've got a sufficient training load, it'll stay sufficient. And you're not, not a beginner, you're an intermediate or advanced trainee. That same training stimulus, it's good for three to four weeks. Easy. You don't have to add a damn thing. Just keep hammering away. Eventually you get the adaptation. I usually, what I've been recommending of late, you know, let's say you're doing four sets of eight. And the fourth set is, you know, two reps from failure, whatever you think it is. Every fourth week, just do an all-out all set. Mm-hmm. And if your goal was eight, if you get 10, you're still in a good spot. If you get 12 or more, you're sandbagging and need to add some weight to the bar, mm-hmm. right? Boom, auto-regulation built in. So they sort of, they criticize some of that. They also address the fact that the whole concept of maximum recoverable volume has always had a big issue. And my favorite response whenever people bring this up, there's a great, there's an old Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that I think sort of, which you've probably seen me post because I post it every other week. Calvin asks his dad, hey, dad, how do they determine the weight limits on a bridge? Calvin's dad says, well, they drive progressively heavier trucks over it until it collapses and then they rebuild it. To which his mom says, if you don't know the answer, don't make stuff up. But the, the joke is that we're going to determine where something breaks by yep. breaking it, mm-hmm. right? And that has always been the fundamental issue for me with maximum recoverable volume. Trying to find out where the maximum is is a fool's game because anybody that's done it finds out very quickly that they're usually, because in the short term, you can do crazy stuff. I have right. done ludic well, not now, but in, in when I was younger and even stupider than I am now, you can get away with ludicrous stuff for six weeks. And, when and if I could break, just pause you real yeah. quickly, um, that, this is something that a conversation that I've had with a number of clients and the one I think fallacy they have is, well, shouldn't I try to determine my maximum recoverable volume? Because the more I can recover from, the more I'm going to grow. And it's like, dude, it's not like it just goes like this. Like there's going to be a, right. for some people, a very wide range where it's basically the same. So even if you're not, I mean, obviously at some point it can right. then become a negative, but even if it's not a negative, like you could maybe do 10 more sets with, with no difference, number one. But number right. two, like you said, it's constantly changing. It's like what you can do in the short term is not what you can do in the long term. What you can do in a deficit is not what you can do in a surplus. It, is your sleep sure. shitty? Is your stress? Like it's right. it's literally always changing. So right. even if I agreed with the concept of increasing volume and then resetting increasing volume, I still wouldn't agree with trying to determine this exact MRV. Right. And, and, you know, let me, in Mike's defense, one of his earlier books, he did acknowledge that minimum effective volume and maximum recoverable volume did vary with the situation in terms of dieting versus this and that and the other. Like, however, but to your point, right, most of us are not elite athletes. We are not training full time. Life gets in the way. You know, this, maybe if you were under, you know, you're over in Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe land, and you're training full time as an Olympic lifter, and they're going to find it, of course, that breaks, you know, 98% of their athletes anyway, maybe then it matters. But even then, if you start looking at what most coaches do, right, because the reality is, okay, let's say, let's say that working at your maximum recoverable volume, let's say it's 20 sets versus the minimum effect or somewhere in the middle versus 15 sets. Maybe it gives you an extra one or 2% in the short term, 1%, right? It was like, aha, okay, well, and, okay. Yeah, if you're an elite athlete and you come to me and go, I've got eight weeks to get ready for training camp. I might care, but then again, if I break you, you're not making the team. Right. 
in the big picture, any of these small term differences will fail when A, you break, because one of the things I find people do, right, maximal recovery volume and overtraining and stuff doesn't catch up with you for a while. And frequently it comes absolutely out of the blue, is that when you fall off the edge, you fall off the edge, and then you're screwed for a month. And people, even if you tell them, I've done it with my, like you go, okay, four weeks maximum at this high, super high specialization. They don't listen. They feel great. They're making progress. They right. keep pushing. And at the eight-week mark, I get nasty emails about how my program is stupid because they double the workout <laughs> volume, right? And so that's the, and I think if you look at what most coaches are doing in a, again, Eastern Europeans don't care. The Chinese don't care. They break 99% of their athletes because they only want medals. Yep. You look at coaches that don't have that situation, optimal volumes over extended periods of time always work better. Period. It's not debatable. Charlie Francis said 30, 35 years ago, you know, it's always better to slightly undertrain than slightly overtrain. Because let's say that that 20 sets will give you the maximum response. Well, 18 will give you most of the maximum response. Mm -hmm. 16 will give you most of most of the maximum response. So you can either risk breaking for that. Yeah, I remember something, Matt Gary. Matt Gary is the coach of the United States powerlifting team. And I bet a lot of people listening to this didn't even know that the United States had a powerlifting team because <laughs> I, I didn't until last year. Yeah. That was, and he, and he, even, he said the same thing. He said, you know what? I get guys come to me. He's like, yeah, you can make the most gains in the shortest periods of time by redlining it but you will have a very short career because realistically you'll break yeah. or you can take a more reasonable approach, get the next five pounds, the next five pounds by training at a reasonable volume level and actually in long term, you'll make better progress. So that was, so that was a big thrust of theirs. Another, they also pointed out that the inferences that were made in the original paper are not correct. Okay. So because we know that there is, that, that above 10 sets or whatever, that volume is associated, more volume is associated with more growth up to a point. Mm -hmm. Again, these were based on all that the study Mike was involved with gave three distinct volumes. None of them were going, we're going to compare increase. You can't infer then, well, if 12 is better than eight and 16 is better than 12, then going from 12 to 16 necessarily generates growth. That's not what the papers did. And I want to come back to something I said earlier. All these studies, on top of probably not measuring what we think they're measuring, which is something separate, we're measuring individual response. We're not even measuring what they think. Just wait. In five years, everyone's going to look back and go, yeah, we were measuring. We weren't even measuring what we thought we were measuring. What we were measuring was who were high and low responders, neither yeah. here nor there. Every study, with the exception of Mike's, and I believe one other one, if you read the methods, every single one of them is based around when the lifters hit the top of the rep range, we added weight. Progressive tension overload is implicit in every single study, save two that I'm aware of, mm. that have ever been done. Because researchers know that progressive tension overload is the primary stimulus to growth. All of these papers, whether it's testing rest intervals, volume, frequency, they are testing those things on the base 
of progressive resistance overload. Everybody thinks we're comparing volumes. Well, yeah, you are after this is already in place, but that's the, right. not the message that's being spread. The message is adding weight isn't what you, adding weight doesn't matter, adding volume. Well, no, all these studies, adding weight is part and parcel of the protocol because that is part and parcel. Now, again, I'm not saying add weight every workout, every week, however, Right. We're testing all these other variables on top of the most important factor. So that was one of their big thrusts was this inference that from these individual studies, you can go, well, I've been increasing from a lower to higher volume. That's not a correct inference. Now, I will ad admit, no one has tested them side to side, side by side, right? No one has tested fixed volume, add weight to presumably don't add weight and increase volume. Presumably. Right. And I would like to see that data, make no mistake. In the short term, it may where everyone will not may not matter. There was one weird paper that that looked at standard add weight to the bar to like it was muscle confusion. I kid you not, it was this weird random workout thing. And over a short period of time, it was kind of a wash. But again, same weight on the bar is gonna be a stimulus for three, four weeks or more in the intermediate level. And what they sort of concluded after they, they basically tore holes in this was that based on what we know, rather than find out where your max, and they got into some other things that had to do with overtraining and the acute versus chronic training load. I, did you read it? Did you read their letter? I didn't read the whole still? letter, no. Yeah, I mean, there's a thing in sports training that talks about your your chronic, sorry, your versus acute training load. So let's say you're doing on average of 10 sets per week and that's your chronic training load and then suddenly boom, you throw these 20 sets. That is associated with injury. It's all in sports performance. And they even said, look, we're kind of, we're a little bit over here. We're not really in the bodybuilding realm or the hypertrophy mm -hmm. realm, but they did mention it, sort of what we were talking about. In the real world, what your maximum recovery volume is on any given week when sleep is bad, food is bad, work is extra hard, you're in the middle of a global pandemic that is causing you nothing but like existential dread and depression, right? Whenever there's a higher level of stress, you cannot recover. And there's actually several studies on that. In collegiate athletes during finals, their strength gains go down. They cannot tolerate the same volume. When light athletes that reported like, I want to say more relationship stress, didn't get the same strength gains. So, their and their basic conclusion, which sounds oh so familiar, was it's better to set things at an optimal volume, which based on what we know, somewhere between, you know, 12, 16, somewhere in that range sets, set a repetition range and use your basic double progressive and wait to hit the top end. Go And it, again, this could take weeks. Yeah, this could take yeah. days, depend, just depending on a whole lot of factors. And I just read that and went, huh, man, that sounds familiar. Because that's what I've been saying. Just pick, don't worry about, minimum volumes are fine when you don't have a lot of time, dieting, you know, whatever. If we're looking at the, you know, and we might also ask the question for most people, what are the, what is the actual magnitude of difference in these results? Like even in right. the short term, like if you double your volume, you don't get double the results. You get like 10, you know, look at any sport. Going from here to here is a big boost. Going from here to here is a, you know, if you're an elite athlete, you need every percentage point. And I'm sorry, if you're the general trainee, 
it doesn't matter. Even if you're an elite athlete, an elite bodybuilder looking to compete, it's not a race. You know, that was one of Mike's arguments against me in the debate. Well, well maybe if we get them closer to the genetic limit quicker, they'll have more, more to add later in their career. Dude, that's not what a genetic limit means. <laughs> right. Right? If you can put up pounds less over the long term. Yes. If you could only put on 40 pounds of muscle over your career, whether you get to 35 in year three or year five, you're still not getting past four. Like, fine, you may reach the top end. Eh, who cares? Yeah. Like I said, eh, that that's, we can, yeah, again, I will, for elite athletes who are being coached very, very, very wisely by coaches that are great. So, yeah, so they just concluded, yes, based on what we know, that it's probably better to just pick an optimal volume. And, and like I said, I just read it and smiled and smiled and smiled. They're way more polite than I would have been. But they said essentially the same things. Sure. Um, and I, I can think, only imagine what the response to it will be. I think, I mean, this is something I've said probably with you and other people, but I hadn't really heard it mentioned much until, I'm not like I'm saying I'm the one who came up with this idea, but just that I haven't heard that many people bring it up. Because everybody talks about ideal volume, ideal routines. And they act as if it's going to hit, like, like you said, like some new, it's going to create a new limit. And the thing sure. is, I'm not saying you should just do the same routine for 20 years, but as long as you're using sensible routines, it's, you're going to yeah. get there eventually. And I mean, the only thing I could say, like to Mike's point is like, for me, I think if you get there in five versus like seven years, it doesn't matter. The only thing I would say is maybe matters is more like the age you start at. I think it's very plausible to say that if somebody starts training at 15, they may get someone, they may get to a level that if, you know, their twin started at 28, they might never, sure. Achieve, oh, sure. which is different. Absolutely. That's a different topic, but yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And I don't disagree. I don't disagree with you at all about that. Um, you know, if you want to get deep into the deep into the weeds, I think if you look at people that started training in the, you know, during puberty, mm -hmm. you see very different things, but that's not who we're writing for, right? We're not, everyone we're writing for, including myself, are a bunch of neurotic late 20s, early 30s guys that don't want to accept that they're never going to get very far past suck. Because if <laughs> they were, right, yeah. the reality, and like I said, this sounds harsh, but it's not, is the people who are casting about reading this stuff looking for magic solutions aren't the guys who are already reaching a high level because those guys don't read bodybuilding.com. They sure as hell don't read my website. Elite mm -hmm. athletes aren't, they're not coming to my website looking for answers any more than they're going to Renaissance. It is, and, and get me, when I was younger, I was that guy. Like, I trust me, I was the wannabe that didn't want, you know, I got as far as I could get. It's better endurance athlete. It's the nature of the beast. And yeah, so long as your routine is not ultimately just fundamentally moronic i make no mistake there's lots of them out there and anyone that says you don't have to add weight to the bar is in that category <laughs> right, over right. time like yeah again i'm not saying you know that's for people who are saying to add weight to the bar of your workout no 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 i've never said that but mm -hmm. if you're benching the same weight at the end of the year as you are now you will be no bigger i don't give a damn how many sets you did yeah. period the strongest unless well unless the only volume that you're increasing is your anabolics volume. That's a different <laughs> issue. We're not going to go down that path. But yeah, big picture, whether you're doing 10 sets and growing at 1% per month, I'm making up numbers, or you do 20 sets and grow at 1.5% per month, assuming you don't break and get tendonitis 
and get injured because that's what realistically happens because when you break, you tend to break hard. Um, then, yeah, great, over, you know, and that's over 10 to 12 weeks. Yeah, great, over a year, you've, you're a couple percent ahead maybe, yeah. assuming that everything else was perfect over that length of your career. So, yeah, maybe you hit your upper limit six months, maybe a year earlier. Hooray, right. you know, right. you only had to spend twice as long in the gym. And I would even say, because this came out in when, when the first volume stuff papers, when that, that Han and All paper came out, the mic was on. There were people basically going, well, I'm not going to add weight to the bar again because it'll cut into my volume. I go, well, I got bad news for you. You've just lost, right? You have just lost the battle. Um you know, we might even get further. And this is maybe a sub, you know, a sub issue. And I'm like, I'm just waiting. I've just been waiting. I said it two years ago. I said, don't worry. I'll wait. You'll all come back and go, huh? Yeah. Well, he was right. Wow. You mentioned that you, uh, I mean, I know you have an endurance athletic background. Did you ever test your VO2 max? Um, did I ever test it directly? I know I did once in college. And it was probably, I want to say mid, it was decent enough, maybe mid 50s, but it's been a lot of years. Like yeah. I did a lot of indirect testing. There were a whole bunch of tests where you did a power, you know, power meter test and it kind of yeah. roughed it out. And like I was, you know, I was good. Like I got probably into the low 60s, especially when I got my body weight down, something in that range. Like, yes. you know, it was, it was one of those things. And, and there's actually, there was another study that came out. I want to go back to the volume thing after this. Sure. And they looked at twin, they looked at twins, which I think is really, that's where the new next research needs to come about. Because again, if you're testing two individuals and one's a hyper responder and one's a low responder, right. the volume is not what you're testing. You're testing who got, who, who's a hyper responder, but they took twins and they had them either do weight training and then wash out and do endurance training. And what they found was that the twins that had the best response to weight training had a really crappy response to endurance training and vice versa. Mm. And they basically, and they said something about doing the opposite type of exercise rescued fitness gains. Because there's been a lot of debate over the last few years, like, are there non-responders to training? And sometimes you just need more volume. And, if, and this came out of endurance studies. And of course, that's filtered into the, the way, oh, hard gainer, just do more volume. Okay. Um, but there is a biology to it, right? I was, you know, I love the weight room. I worked hard. I did okay, given, you know, I would train a lot differently now than I did then. But I was built for endurance physiologically. Mm. Got a good buddy. Uh, who I've known for a bunch of years. He was a good power lifter, but he was a great rugby player. And rugby requires, you know, that mixture of fiber types, that mixture of physiologies, where he was he wouldn't have been a great distance athlete. He wasn't going to be a great strength power athlete. But right in the middle, man, he was just like dialed for that sport. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I said, I mean, I always loved lifting weights and I was okay at it, but at, I have I was measured twice over 20 years. My testosterone was 290 to so 300. You know, I was right below the middle, low range. And as I, you know, I will make a potential argument that uh, endurance athletes, there's there's hormonal differences. There's stuff going on that, um, you know, frequently the hard gainer type has higher cortisol. And cortisol helps mobilize energy. I will argue that for endurance athletes, higher cortisol is a good thing. Mm. Or a higher cortisol response because I was definitely a neurotic, you know, as opposed to now. Um, <laughs> anyway, going back to the volume thing. So I think another thing worth considering in this whole argument, right? So we go back and look at the, the Cody Hahn paper that Mike was involved with. So first off, right, 
So again, if people who don't remember the details, they took a group of guys, they started with 10 sets a week, and they worked up progressively to 32 sets per week over six weeks span. They trained three days a week, and it was like squat, bench, row, RDL, it might have been something else. You have to realize that the workout routine was, I'm going to use the word goofy to be polite, but trust me, that's not how I would describe it. They did, they worked at 60% of maximum, which is a warm-up set. Mm -hmm. They did a set of 10 with 60% of maximum. With they had they they four reps four reps in reserve reported throughout the workout throughout the study, so they could have done fourteen reps to failure. They cycled so they went squat, bench, RDL, or whatever it is with mm -hmm. a two minute break in between. They had ten minutes between any given set of a single exercise. So I want you to imagine doing ten sets of ten in the squat at sixty percent of max with a ten minute rest interval. You're doing a series of warm-up sets. Right. This is not weight was not added to the bar. They just increased volume. Now, irrespective of that, over the 10 to 20 sets, and then and let me go on record. Methodologically, the paper was really well done. Right. They did dex dex or all they did ultrasound, they did quad muscle biopsy, measured body water. The, the study itself was extremely well done methodologically. So I, I definitely want to make that point. And what they sort of found was that from 10 to 20 sets, there's an increase in lean body mass, a couple kilos from memory, maybe not. From 20 to 32 sets, there was a smaller increase in lean body mass. So, so again, to our point, you know, 20 got you here and, you know, 50% more got you this. When mm -hmm. they measured water, it turned out that the majority of those lean body mass gains from 2032 was just water. It was a pump. It was water retention, mm. which lean body mass is lean body mass, but that's not muscle. Right. There was also some weirdness in the biopsy data that it looked like from 10 to 20, the triceps got bigger and then smaller, but the quads got smaller and then bigger. Mm. Kind of. It, it's really, man, looking through, reading through the results on that paper gave me a headache, but it, so, and there is, anecdotally, people have always felt that legs need a little bit more volume than upper body. So sure. it's, I will concede certainly that optimal volumes may vary based on body part. We've also got the overlap issue. We've got the set count, you know, because they were doing like bench press and row and measuring triceps. How do we count? You know, there's a bunch, a lot of things going on. The point of this being that from 10 to 20 was the big gain, 20 to 32 was 32 was a smaller gain, most of which was water. And even the paper itself concluded that 20 sets per week may be an effective cap on volume. So even the big pro-volume paper put 20 sets as an effective cap. However, yeah. they then went back even further. They reanalyzed a bunch of the people, about half of them. And this was a money thing. They basically, and it actually is really interesting. This is true of a lot of studies. When you look at the individual growth data, and it was true of this study, right? So if here's the zero line, like of the number of subjects, like 20 got growth of varying amounts, about half of them lost. And when you report data as an average, that gets masked. But the simple fact is that nearly half the subjects actually lost size. Right, yeah. 
So anyway, they went back and they took like the top 15 responders. And again, this was a money thing, it was a, a funding thing. They wanted to be able to like, okay, we want to see what was real by looking at the ones who grew above what we have the ability to measure. So they looked at those. And so there's this idea that's been floating around in training for decades, which is myofibrillar, that's the actual muscle fibers, versus sarcoplasmic growth. Right. Sarcoplasm is everything else. It's the water, minerals, glycogen, all the mitochondria, the ribosomes, all that crap you forgot from high school biology. So it's the muscle fibers and then everything else. Right. And there's been longstanding debate. The, the belief for years being that low, heavier, lower rep, heavier training generated predominantly myofibrillar growth. High volume, short rest was mainly pump growth, sarcoplasmic growth. They used to talk about how East Coast bodybuilders who trained with high intensity had density, and the West Coast bodybuilders, the the train, you know, who just trained for the pump, would just kind of look puffy, and if they didn't train for a week, all their size would go away. Right, and right. Yeah. We kind of went. Europeans had the same thing. And then for a while, everybody in the industry was like, no, it's crap. And then this paper came out and was like, uh, yeah, actually, most of the growth was sarcoplasmic. And in Hahn and all, they've done another paper. God, what was the name? It basically, essentially, are there different kinds of muscle growth? I forget the title of it off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, about, I think it just came out. Probably last year, right? End of last year. Because I keep I keep meaning to write an article about it, and I just can't get my head in the game right now to write literally anything. Um, it wasn't that one. I think we talked about Cody and I talked about it. If I'm remembering, like last oh. October. Um, it could have been. Date last opened. It was called by Michael D. Roberts, Cody Hahn, Christopher Vaughn, Shelby Osborne, and Kaylin Young. Sarcoplasmic hypertrophy and skeletal muscle, a scientific unicorn or resistance training adaptation. This whole thing with researchers trying to make cutesy titles just getting on my last nerve. Levine started it. Um, oh, good question. The pre-pub was um, actually is... Uh, March 12th, 2020, accepted June 18th. So really? this was just a few months ago. Um, they might have done, you know, they might have written something about that before then. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so anyway, but anyway, so it's like, so now we get into the issue of our different types of training. Is progressing volume generating a different type of growth than progressing intensity? Which is something that we certainly, and, and it was, it was really, because after the Hahn paper came out and was like, oh, it's just one study, they actually cited like four earlier studies that showed that that was exactly the case, that yeah. this had already been, this had been shown previously. And one of the, the, I think that the paper I just just gave the title of, it may depend, basically the ones that showed there's no difference, that, that training just, that increases myofibrillar and sarcoplasmic, were all in untrained. And the one showing that there is a difference we're all in train mm. and right there that's kind of makes a really when everything's untrained you're probably not going to see a real difference because right. when you're a beginner everything just works exactly the same i don't need to ever see another study in beginners for the rest of my career we get it we get it it's all about the same we get it move on and you know, one, and, and so and different ideas have been thrown around. I wrote one on my website and there's some earlier stuff. And so like, so imagine you've got a muscle fiber 
right? Or you've got a muscle, whole muscle. You've got your muscle fibers in here. You've got your sarcoplasma. So the idea was that let's say you increase the size of the individual muscle fibers. So they get bigger within this. Well, now the muscle density is increased. Or maybe you get more packing. Whereas if you increase the sarcoplasm with volume training, now you've got more fluid. You've now decreased your muscle density, right? Now the same amount of muscle fiber, my, the actual muscle fibers, take up less volume. Mm -hmm. So I kind of hypothesized, okay, well, do they happen sequentially? Do they happen? Can we make them happen simultaneously? Can one become limiting, right? Is it possible that you don't have enough sarcoplasm for now the muscle fibers to expand it? There's just not room. Do you then do volume training with pump training, higher volumes, to increase the sarcoplasm or vice versa? I don't know. We don't know yet. Certainly, if you look at some earlier training programs, Perillo, even my own The Ultimate Diet too, you know, Perillo was like, yeah, well, you did your heavy work, you did your pump work, well, boom, then you did some capillary density work with aerobics. It's like, yeah, you know, 100,000 bodybuilders over five decades are going to get something correct. <laughs> Maybe right. not everything, but they're, they're going to they're gonna get a few things correct. So I think we get into that issue too, that, I, that, that getting back to this whole, the, the letter, this inference that, well, since higher volumes studied discreetly show an increasing hypertrophy with progressive volumes to a point, ergo, the best way to approach cycle manipulation is by increasing volume and back down, it doesn't follow because that's not what the studies did. And you can't, you can't look at six different studies and go, oh, these show these increasing volumes. And then, like I said, stand to reason, which is you logicking to the conclusion you already believed. Um, like I said, I want to see it. I would like to see it examined. I think in the short term, it probably won't matter. If they do that study, I really, really, really want them to not only measure full muscle growth, with ultrasound or DEXA, because ultrasound, which is typically used, cannot distinguish what's growing. The Hans group, they had biopsy data to look at, mm. right? Ultrasound can't distinguish fluid from muscle fibers. Oh, right. If yeah. they do this paper, if they do the, we're gonna progress volume versus adding weight to the bar within a fixed volume, please, please, please find the funding to see if we are getting differential growth, because this would be important data. Because if they are truly generating different types of hypertrophy, that would be as important as determining if one works better than the other or works worse or whatever. Right. So yeah, so Eric and Jacob and their, their essential point was, yeah, based on what we know, pick an optimal volume, pick, you know, use a double progression, which I would note doesn't work for everybody. Some people suck at adding reps and telling them to go from eight to 12, they will never ever get there. Hmm. People often get that adding one rep is like adding two to 3% weight to the bar. Sure. Like if you, look at, if, you look, at the, if you look at the rep percent relationship, every rep is about two to 3%. Yep. So telling someone to add a rep from workout to workout would be no different than saying add 2% to the bar. And, that, and some people just suck at reps. I've seen people that, I think a years ago, he could do chins for sets of five with as much weight as we can hang from his waist. And we would like, he was doing two, three wheels hanging off his waist. We took that thing off. He got like eight reps with body weight. He was, <laughs> not, 
built for reps. For him, it was better to stay in fives and when it looked easier or faster or whatever, to throw two and a half pounds on there. If I told him I want you to go from five to eight reps, he would have never gotten there in any, in, in he'd still be working on it. And then I coached him 15 years ago. Yeah. So that's not, but what you do in that case so you know you're not good at that. Then like I said you use reps in reserve. You use what I mentioned earlier. Every once in a while, just go ahead and do an all-out set. Just go ahead and do an AMRAP, whatever you want to call it. If your goal is eight and you get 12, add whatever small baby weight you can to the bar. You know, that gets into a whole separate thing. Um, you know, I, I you know, you know Sumi and I, I mentioned the way I coach her. Yeah. I don't manipulate volume at all because I don't believe in it. Never have. I set volume where I think it should be. Uh, and but it's just I just wait for the adaptation. I don't see any need to push it. It's going to happen when it's going to happen. But I'm watching bar speed. I'm watching technical quality. I basically I have. I, yeah, it's very, and, and make no mistake. It's it's very, very different having a coach versus writing something down, which is right. why people that when I write articles or write in my books and stuff, because I, I can't I can't explain to them like what flow chart I'm using in my brain to decide on certain things, not to any functional way. I have to give them the simplest guidelines that I can that not only will be effective, but it will also save them from themselves. And I say that in the sense that people are their, trainees are their own worst enemies. I was my own worst enemy. Again, I'm not saying I'm above, that I'm like, ha, 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 chortling from on high. I did it too. People cannot be objective about themselves. And if I tell them, I want you to push until you hit this point, they will keep pushing. I have to tell them, stop at eight weeks. Now, if I were coaching them, I might go, we go two weeks more. I don't know that. I don't know who I'm training. I don't know who I'm writing for. So I have to, what I can write in a book, and I used to get into some arguments with other coaches, and they would be like, well, I do it this way. I'm like, right, you're coaching hands-on. You're able to make the modifications you're describing on the spot. I can't do that. I can't do that in a book. Um, So I have to be much more conservative in what I recommend. And I don't know why I started. Oh, right. So with Sumi, I'm just like, okay, I watch her bar speed. I watch, you know, what is, she's doing eight singles in the squat. What does her eighth rep look like? Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, like whenever it's time, she'll do seven reps. I'll go, all right, let's throw the next weight on and I'll just see what it looks like. Ah, didn't move any slower than the last way. Cool. You're, just re- you're ready. But again, that's me coaching. Yeah. Sure. Um, people trying to themselves don't have that capacity. Um, so yeah. So it was like I said, reading that, reading that letter, it made me smile. Um, I wanted to get your opinion. Is obviously subjective. Just a lot of people talk about you know what could be expected genetically. And somebody who I think is always brought up is like average genetics is eric helms which i would actually disagree with um you know he competes at six feet tall and like a very lean low 180s um i was just curious if you had to put into like percentile of you know from the worst genetics to the best just i mean again obviously this is completely just opinion but given the physique how many people do you think could like really get to that pro i mean by definitely like so wait does eric claim he has average genetics I don't think he does. I think I've just heard a lot of people say, like, this is what average genetics working really hard for a long time can get to. I don't think people understand the concept of an average. Yeah. Right. By definition, elite athletes are the exceptions. By definition, right, that he, like you said, he competes at the elite level 
at a very high level. He, he's got his pro card, I'm fairly mm. sure. Don't know. I can't keep track of the 37 different bodybuilding federations anymore than I can keep track of the 87 powerlifting federations. <laughs> but by definite, you know, that, that's like saying that, oh, someone running a 10-second 100-meter is average. By definition, if you reach the elite level, you're not average. By definition, that that's this is uh, delusional naivete, right? And this is something that the industry certainly pushes. The industry has always told people, ah, if you just work hard enough or take this supplement, usually, you know, you can get to this level. And it would be like looking at the top, you know, the top five in any powerlifting uh, weight class, whatever, and going, yeah, I, I knew someone years ago. And they were of female. They were had um, half. It's either Samoan or Tongan blood. Mm-hmm. And you want to see some freak, some freak shows. Samoan lift. Samoans will go into the weight room and pull four hundred five on first deadlift. And mm-hmm. that's and that's the women, right? <laughs> Sorry, little joke. Um, Salt Lake City, where I live, they had a huge uh, island. Uh, it's either Island Samoa or Island Tonga, um, because they went there and did missionary work so they could bump up the BYU front line for the football team. Those guys are monsters. I saw a lifter once in the gym. She was a, I want to say, shot putter. Over six feet tall. I watched her do reps with 225 like it was a warm-up weight, right? Yeah. They are – so anyway, this this person I knew had pulled 405 and was convinced that the average female her size could do it with enough work. I'm like, look at elite powerlifting records. You are like top 2% yeah. by definition, right? Because we can we – can, let's assume, right, people probably remember whatever, a normal curve from, from back in the day from high school – um, I detested statistics, right? And the reality is most people will be average. That's what the average means, right? Most people who like will lift, most people won't step on stage because if most people could step on stage, they would step on stage. And by definition, yeah. most people aren't stepping on stage because they're never going to get on stage no matter how hard they train. Yeah, and I think general- the point, like with Eric especially, because I think a lot of people will look at him and, you know, this isn't meant to be a hate on Eric at all because I think he looks phenomenal, but him in his off season in normal clothes looks very much like a regular guy. And, you know, so I think like, again, by probably our skewed standards of what we see on the internet and all that stuff like that. But I think it's important to remember like, yeah, maybe, you know, when he is in his off season wearing a t-shirt, you're not like, holy shit. Like, obviously he's not gonna look like an IFBB pro, but that doesn't mean that he's average, that the average person could get there. I mean, I think his fat free mass index probably is around like 24 which is you know pretty damn good i mean yeah oh yeah so okay so i pulled it up just for the absolute sheer hell of it um he says so strongman powerlifting and weightlifting between 90 and 96 kilos which is just 110 120 pounds shredded stage weight as a bodybuilder is 80 kilos so that's 160 176 uh stays 90 to 100 kilo uh and that's fairly tall i guess he said um six six you're talking about eric yeah yeah eric six feet he competed at on stage around 180. okay um and you know and you got to realize that you know these guys are especially in the modern era you know 10 20 pounds down from water they they get so ripped you know in in a decade past 
he would have competed a weight class up because the conditioning wasn't there. The dehydration sure. wasn't there. Everybody is easily five kilos lower than they probably were back in the day. The thing is, I think you're right. We are completely skewed by, A, what we see among the pros. There are guys that are 150 kilos on stage right now, yeah. right? I have seen Ronnie Coleman in person. I flew back from the Arnold one year, and he was sitting in first class taking up both seats. He's gigantic in media. To see him up close, it's an, they are another species of human at this point, pro bodybuilders. Yeah. And I think it is – and there is – so there's this really old goofy book called Shredded. It's this old 80s bodybuilding book that actually had better information than, than a lot of people. But a lot of that stuff wasn't so bad. And it delineated these eight stages of contest ready. There was the full house where you kind of like heavy and bloated and didn't have a lot of definition. And, and you went progressively down to, you know, it was called sliced actually, until you got to the sliced level. And sliced, it was like you are within half a pound of your ultimate leanness. You can hold this for three to four hours. And he's like, but as it goes through, it goes, once you get beyond a certain point, because you will look completely ordinary in street clothes. And as soon as you take your shirt off, jaws will drop. And that's the thing. We are so used to seeing these pros, these monsters, right? That, and, and again, I would ask, okay, all the people, I, I would just say to anybody, if you're convinced that Eric is average and you can get there with hard training, then why haven't you? Right. right. It's really just that simple. Right. Why don't we see even if you go to a natural bodybuilding show sometime, which I highly do not recommend. It is <laughs> one of these single. Most, I got talked into judging one years ago. Single really? most boring. At least I got fed. At least I got fed because it was all you fed. judged a bodybuilding show. I had a buddy is a pro. He was a his, uh, bodybuilder friend, my training partner in Austin. He goes out to me during the week. He goes, hey, Lyle, what you doing on Saturday? You know how people do that? They're usually asking you to help them move. Yeah, something like that. If they ask what you're doing on Sunday, you're getting invited to Bible uh, Bible study. <laughs> but on a Saturday, they want you to help somebody move. I'm like, nothing. Why? He goes, want to judge a bodybuilding show with me? I'm like, not particularly, but okay. It was the Texas Shredder here in Austin. We've got uh, Dave Gooden, the Texas Shredder, held a show. And so I went, and it was exhausting. It was, it was interesting. It was hilarious in its own way, especially the evening show. Because uh -huh. people show up in evening wear for what is a fundamentally ridiculous activity. Really? Uh -huh. Yeah. As far as like yeah. dress attire, like. Oh yeah, and that yeah. I mean the audience. Oh yeah, they, we got we we got in trouble because we wore the same stuff from the morning. Apparently, the judges were, were supposed to be in like evening wear. I'm like, yeah, hell no. Uh -huh. um, and then basically had to sit through. It's funny at every bodybuilding show. There's one guy who must pose to also Sprock Zarathustra, the theme from 2001, that really kind of overblown, overdramatic song, who yeah. thinks that he's, just, that he's the first guy that's ever done it. Someone will pose to its reigning men. So it's just, it, it's hard to even really describe. And at the, at the local amateur level, you'll have in any class, three people that are in shape, three people that are pretty good, and three people that seem to have forgotten to diet <laughs> or train. It was really fascinating. It was really, I mean, it's a fascinating experience. But anyway, if you go watch this, even at the higher levels, the biggest class, you will see a handful of super heavyweights that are in shape. They exist, and there's more of them now because there's more people in the sport. We're talking 100 kilos, you know, up over 200 pounds that are actually in shape. You will see a handful, you know, the next class down, whatever, 190s, 
more the biggest class 165s the yeah. 70 kilo lifters 75 kilo lifters you're looking at guys that in contest shape are a massive 165 pounds right that and even that's those are elite for that height but that is so anybody who thinks that eric who holds you know 95 whatever 90 to 100 in the off season which again it's glycogen water loaded carrying some body fat because strongman powerlifting, you don't need to be too lean you don't want to be too lean sure again i would just it's real simple i'd say well if you think that's average then why haven't you gotten there because by definition the elites are not and my you know my general i put this on my website assuming proper training in most sports by about year three you're, you will have made the majority of the gains you're going to make. This is true. And you look at the VO2 max studies, you look at all the endurance work. Like even in, in endurance sports are really interesting because over by like year three or four, most endurance athletes, their VO2 max has not, it will not change from that point on. They have hit the upper limit that they're going to hit. Their efficiency might go up a little bit. Their lactate threshold isn't changing very much. And it really raises the question, how do they keep getting better? Yeah. And in running, I think it's long-term connected tissue adaptations. I think you see adaptations in the tendons, the ligaments, titan. Trust me, five, well, about 2007, I was like, trust me, titan is going to be the key. And now everyone's like, yeah, big part of it. It's one of these little structural, ultra-structural things within muscle that's yeah. very important in that overall function and, and transmitting forces. I think runners, they, runners just uh, get bouncier. Does the VO2 max, you're talking after three to four years of like legitimate endurance training, it tends yeah. to max out. doesn't go up any higher than it's going to go. Lactate threshold doesn't go up. Do you um, know typically, because I, I know... Like I've heard that, for instance, like vertical jump, you know, is a very good indicator of um, genetic potential, squat strength, things like that, and that it's not something that actually tends to increase that much with training. Like to, to, you can increase it, but sure. I've heard that it, it's more genetically influenced. VO2 max, do you know? I'm just curious because I know mine's around 50, and I yeah. don't really do any. I, I mean, I do lists, like, you know, maybe yeah. two hours of lists a week. So I'm just curious, you know, if I have a 50 – at, I wouldn't say baseline, but you know, with very basic training, I wonder right. what the potential for that to get to would be. It, what, what most it's it's hard to say. I don't remember specifically what the numbers are. Like it's you know ten, fifteen percent, whatever. You might get into the mid fifties. But what they found with with top endurance athletes is twofold. One, they tend to be born with a very high VO two max to begin with. That's what I'm. But also, yeah. they show the greatest increase with training. Right, percentage these, or absolute? Uh, I think both, really? but it, it's sort of it's sort of six one half does the other, right? Because they're like yeah. born at sixty and they train, they get to like seventy five, yeah. and to be an elite endurance athlete, pretty much VO two max isn't predictive, but it is required. Like if you have a low VO two max, you're never going to be a great endurance athlete, but having right. a high VO two max won't make you a great and it just gives you the potential like sure. the highest ever recorded is like 85 and that was in cross-country skiing you i know. heard of one uh, guy reportedly at 96 but i don't know if that's you know. I, yeah maybe i would be you know there well there have been a couple occasionally you get these freak shows there's yeah. a guy in the 70s this elite cross-country skier who just came out of the woodwork and started blowing people away mm -hmm. his entire family had a genetic mutation where he didn't produce 
acid during exercise. <laughs> so he was able to just go at an intensity no one else could else could sustain. Wow. Um, Steve Prefontaine, who believed was a seventy runner in the seventies, believed there's no such thing as talent. It's just working hard. He could do his easy morning runs at a six minute mile, and when they measured him, he had a VO two max of seventy five, which probably helped his running out just a touch. And don't right. get me wrong, did he train hard to get it? Sure, but. There's no steady I've seen. I mean, they see frequently in older folks or what, 35, 40. Yeah. And you train, you get to 50, and, well, you're basically an incredibly mediocre cyclist, an right. incredibly mediocre runner. Probably the craziest study ever. So that's one of my favorites, a guy named Hickson back in the 70s or early 80s, decided he wanted to torture some people. Because some of it is, at, at the time, the training was like, oh, we're just going to, like, lots of low intent, just grind miles. And he kind of wanted to see, like, is it possible to accelerate this process? So get get what he had. These people he took untrained people. Their average VO2 max is like 50. Three days a week, they ran an hour as hard as they could. So basically right at their threshold pace. They started at 40 Jeez. minutes, 50. That was Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. They rode the bike. They'd done a VO2 max test. They rode for five minutes at their VO2 max intensity. Did that six times with a two-minute break. So basically, they were coming out of promotion. In one session? Oh, yeah. They did three times Holy a week. Crap. And then Sunday, they retested the VOT max to adjust for the next week. And these were untrained individuals. And they did, and they did it. They're like, we want to give them different activities so they don't get hurt. Right? So they alternated running and cycling to work different yeah. muscles. Anyone who's done both, running tends to be a little bit more centrally limited. Yeah. Heart and And I think... Whether by design or not, they're like, okay, the running kind of trained the heart and the cardiovascular system. The cycling definitely trains very local. Anybody that cycled hard, it's yeah, very sure. local to the leg. It's usually quite and, a bit lower other than um, cyclists. Yes, but what they found was a linear increase in VO2 max over the length of the study. Every single week, wow. it went up to like, I think, and some people hit 63, 65, which at the time was, you know, a sub-elite level. After how long, you said? Like six weeks, maybe eight. Really? Untrained people got to about six. Wow. Yeah, which basically, and their kind of their point was with intense training, it doesn't take you three years to maximize your VSU max. Right. Now, and I think one guy continued for a little bit longer and saw some further increases, but the, the, the take homes are two of them. One was um, everybody quit when the study was over. <laughs> because, yeah. Um, horrible. <laughs> I actually, I did it. I did that training before I went to Salt Lake City. I did it. It was horrible. Trying to the, the VO two max intervals are the worst. You are just yeah, I've done two, and it's a two minute break. Yeah, I mean it's the hardest test I've ever done. <laughs> and then they they redid it in trained athletes, and it didn't work. They were already for whatever reason. I think they were just too too highly trained that they were able to basically fall off the edge. But um, yeah, it's so, like, yeah, you can get people to it, but again, you take somebody who's starting at 40, they might get to 50, and that's that's about it. That's that's about as far yeah. as it gets for VO2 max. So you see these real strict genetic limits. And again, my, my general belief is wherever you're at at the three or four-year mark, and it would be interesting, you know, if you, if, like, talk to Eric. A, the big question is, that whenever you see somebody who's big, uh, Nusima Inyang, did I get that right? He was this monstrous pro bodybuilder, uh, I believe of African descent. Don't swear me to that. He, when I did some math, 
his FFMI was like 30 plus. He was a giant. But if you look at pictures of him at 15, or maybe that was somebody else, he was bigger than most of us are after training for several years, right? If you look at those guys that are coming in at 220 on stage, they were like 180 in high school. They were yeah, already sure. big. You look at the guys that are 165 on stage, they were 140 in high school. They're 180 in the off season. And by the time they diet and dehydrate down, they come in at a whopping 75 kilos and you put them in a t-shirt and jeans and you won't think they work out, especially in contest shape. Yeah. But again, we also have a very skewed idea. If you saw Eric walking around, not in street clothes, but if he were one of those old 80s douche bodybuilders who felt the need to go to the mall and wear a string, a ripped string tee, and right. his, his Zubaz, which my old training partner did do in the 80s, because that's what you did, you would look at him and go, yeah, that guy's big. Yeah. You put him yeah, in, sure. because again, you're comparing, you're visually comparing that to a pro bodybuilder. Sure. There's a picture on Nine Gag, one of my favorite. It's just a meme site that people mm. post dumb pictures. There was a picture of these two pro bodybuilders in suits, and it looked like they had put a mountain gorilla. The suit, because the suits don't fit well, they're not cut for that body type, right? Right? right. Or you, you know, you see, like you see Jason Momoa, but he's like two sixty, right? He's he is an absolute giant of a sure. human being. So yeah, at only 195 pounds. You will not look humongous. But again, I would go, okay, great. If that's average, where are all the pros stepping on stage at that number? We've got thousands of people in the, the probably, you know, because everyone likes to prattle on about, oh, you know, nutrition, there are no genetic limits. We've got so much better training. We've got so much better nutrition. And yet, natural bodybuilding hasn't progressed at all. Right, right. At most sure. have more guys in the heavier classes because there's a larger uh, base of people doing it. You don't have so many people that would have probably been going into other sports. And when you, same thing, you see the same thing in powerlifting right now. In that, in like raw powerlifting, you're not really seeing increases in the records, not by much. What you're seeing is more people at the higher percentage. Like, yeah, right. you, get a, you get a free show like Mark, Mark Henry, right, who squatted over 1,000 raw. He also weighs 400 pounds, right? Right, which is again, and don't don't mishear me. I'm not trying to take anything away from that. Lift is ridiculous. Sure, but suddenly you have an absolute freak of nature, genetic exception athlete who, in any previous time, would have gone into a totally different sport, who happened to pick powerlifting. Right. Okay, great. Where are all the other thousand pound powerlifters? <laughs> There are none of them, right? They simply do not exist anymore. You know, you see these exceptional, it's this one freak show athlete. Lamar Gant is still probably, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was, I believe, the only lifter. He's done a four times body weight deadlift. He did over 600 at 123. And you, and you look at him and he had two things going for him. One, he had scoliosis. And it was rumored, at least, that his spine would almost shift and squish during the lift. His arms, when, when his arms are straight, his knuckles are below his knees. Yeah. So go watch him lift. And he uses this really crazy round back style. The bar is moving like this far. Right, right? It right. starts up, it literally finishes below his knees. Jeez. He was a genetically 
just a genetic freak biomechanically meant to deadlift in the same way Ed Cohn was a biomechanically perfect specimen to deadlift. These are not the averages because by definition, that's not what the word average means.